Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey there, it's Mike and Davina here, and welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast. Thanks so much for joining me today. Today's episode's a great one. I'm interviewing a great mastering engineer. His name is Paul Edwards. He's based out of Montreal, Canada, and he's done a lot of great work. He's worked with some bands like Smashing Pumpkins, Flaming Lips, Ben Harper, and a whole bunch of other guys. Now, one interesting part about his background that we talk about a little bit in this episode is that Paul was actually very instrumental in the creation of Lander, which if you're not familiar with it, Lander is an online mastering service where you can basically drag and drop your songs into the Lander website and it instantly masters your files. So it's interesting to talk to a mastering engineer who helped create a service that some mastering engineers would think is ruining the mastering industry. So it was interesting to have a great conversation with Paul about it and get into a little bit of a debate about, you know, when is the right time to use a real mastering engineer versus an automated mastering service like Lander. And there's some other ones out there too. But uh, I thought it was a really cool conversation to have with him and get some fresh perspective. But yeah, we have a great conversation here and Paul shares a lot of really great tips all about mastering. We get into some of his step-by-step -step process for mastering. We talk about some of the equipment that he likes to use. We talk about audio restoration and some things that you can do to clean up your tracks before you send them off for mixing and mastering. And yeah, I, I just think that we had a really fun conversation. I think you're gonna learn a ton from all of the stuff that he shared here. And let's just jump right into it. I can't wait for you to hear it. Paul, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's a pleasure. Awesome, man. So for people who might not know your background, can you give us a little bit of your story? Yeah, I started out uh, playing in bands in the 90s. I uh, started bass and vocals, and then eventually, I wouldn't say graduated to guitar, but for songwriting purposes, I started playing a little bit more guitar over the years. And uh, then I played in a bunch of bands, grunge bands and rock bands and experimental rock bands and even a country rock band at some point over the last uh, maybe five, six years, uh, which was a lot of fun. Uh, but yeah, basically just started like a lot of people around my age, uh, doing four track recording and having fun and playing shows and sneaking into bars and trying to get your friends in to see shows when you're a teenager. And, um, and then eventually started, got into digital multi-tracking and eventually, you know, bought a PC and built some custom towers over the years and, uh, away we go. So kind of got into recording because I was a musician and wanted to record my own music. And then, you know how it goes, eventually you end up just producing and recording mostly <laughs> other bands and let, doing less and less of your own stuff. So that's kind of where I'm at now, but I've started writing again. So we'll see what happens with that. But I haven't done a show in a few years. And, and I know you do a lot of mastering as well. So how did that all come about? Yeah, mastering was pretty much uh, out of necessity. So one of the things uh, I did most when I started out because I didn't have my own studio. I did a lot of live recording. So I had like a Pro Tools rig, multi-track and recorded a lot of bands. Uh, you know, the biggest artists I've probably worked with uh, the most are um, the major label ones are from a lot of live stuff. Although I've done other other things over the years with major label artists. So like uh, recording live like Action Bronson and the Smashing Pumpkins, Flaming Lips, uh, Ben Harper, uh, I don't know, Damien Marley, Interpol, 
And like for the Canadians out there, Feist, Sam Roberts, Stars, Joel Plaskett, Jill Barber, uh, Simple Plan. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, things like that. So yeah, so I got into doing a lot of live stuff and then you're kind of a turnkey guy when you're doing live stuff. So you're recording, mixing and mastering. So it was out of necessity basically. Yeah. And then I started to really enjoy it. And then over the years, um, started to study that and, you know, devour every book and magazine I could get my hands on. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you start to learn about mastering? Cause you and I were kind of talking about this a little off air, but like, there's still a lot of mystery about mastering and what it is and, and the dark art of it, if you will call it that. Um, so how did you learn about it? Did you intern with people or? Uh, not, not really. I didn't really intern, but I studied it at Concordia. After I did my undergrad, I, I got, I sort of took a year and got into the electroacoustics program. So I did that for a year. Uh, a lot of people might know not know that, but it's kind of like musique, con uh, musique concrète and, you know, that kind of stuff, like experimental. You're not making songs, you're making pieces. It's kind of a uh, more of an artsy thing, but you're you're doing a lot of manipulation of sounds and playing with like Aries synths and working with tape loops and fun stuff like that. Um, so I did that for a year, and then I used that to beg my way into the advanced um, sound recording courses at Concordia. So I studied under three different professors while I was there. It kind of changed every year. And then the last year I had the same guy as the year before. And the last two years when I had him, he was the head of the department. And he said to a few of us that he liked, I guess, stay after class and I'll teach you about mastering. So I guess that's where I started to learn about mastering. And I bought the Bob Katz book and became a Bob Katz convert. And uh, along the way too, there was another mastering engineer that would drop by uh, this Ryan Morey from, um, from Montreal, he would drop by every once in a while and give these lectures. So at the time I was just about to put out an album with, uh, Pat Kreef from the Deers at that point. Um, so we were in a band together and we got, so I contacted Ryan, who was the only mastering engineer I knew at the time. And we went to master record there. And then I kept taking my other projects to, to Ryan. So, you know, I would chat with him a lot. So that would, I wouldn't call that mentoring, but it was nice to work with, a you know, a real proper mastering engineer who had done a lot of big bands, including uh, Arcade Fire and stuff like that. That's awesome. Yeah, it's always important to learn from other people who are ahead of you so you can kind of learn their techniques and everything. Yeah, abs absolutely. So other than other than the schooling and uh, the books, um, I guess at that time, YouTube hadn't really come out. And it was really after I'd stopped, uh, stopped doing my advanced sound engineering courses that YouTube appeared uh, back in 2006 or whatever. I think that's when I first or 2005 when I first became aware of that. Um, so I, since then I've, you know, a lot of online videos and stuff like that, but I also went to Berkeley and studied, uh, under Jonathan Weiner, who's now working with Isotope. He's doing some really cool stuff out there. So I studied mastering with him. Uh, and, uh, yeah, basically it's all the rest of it's, um, self-taught. And I guess the four years that I spent working at the audio tech company, uh, building, uh, an online uh, automated mastering technology was, you know, doing all that research and building that tech. Uh, that was a learning experience as well. So, yeah, I guess I guess I've I've learned uh, a lot about mastering in a lot of different ways, and it, everything builds on top of each other. That's awesome. Yeah, I know that. Um, just even looking at your website right now, it seems like you consider yourself to be a much more of a mastering engineer these days. Um, and obviously, like going back to your story about how you started as a musician, like it seems like 
the natural path for most people getting into audio engineering is that they're in the same boat. They want to record themselves and they want to get into either becoming a recording or mixing engineer. Um, and not many people will go into deciding they want to be a mastering engineer. So what made you choose that as your present setup? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's funny because, um, I still do record and produce, but, uh, mastering, mastering is something that I really enjoy everyone's not into it it's very <laughs> meticulous it's very methodical um there's a i would say there's a lot more tech uh tech things to nerd out on than than probably uh engineering or producing um and there's like a lot of you know creating ddps or putting in metadata or doing audio restoration um leveling out tracks you know for for an album or a collection of songs it's a little bit more like less artistic i'd say even though you can put your stamp on things so i think i'm drawn to that I, I i enjoy doing a lot of different things i like to learn about stuff and i never like to be bored with anything so the fact that i can do some mixing one day and some mastering another day and some restoration you know another day or a combination of all in one day and get mastering done in the morning so when your ears are at their best and then as things start to fade you can switch over to mixing you know, where it might not be as critical in terms of uh, of how those hairs in your ears are firing. You know? <laughs> if, if, if they're starting to fall down and getting a little tired, I can switch and do some editing or something like that. But um, but I've always enjoyed it. I don't know why uh, particularly, other than the answer I just gave. Um, but it's funny because I'm reminded of this story when I was just bringing up Ryan before, that there was a student that I had mentored and she was going to see Ryan to learn about mastering. And when I spoke to her and on a gig that we were working, I was like, and she's like, oh, all I want to do is mastering. I'm like, really? And that surprised me because I was producing at the time and I was recording and that's what I was most stoked on. And this is going back maybe 10 years or more. And, but she saw it, she sort of like gravitated towards that. And I don't think I, I don't think I had that. Whereas like some people, they say, hey, all, when I found out what mastering was and I did it for a while, that's all I wanted to do. And I was like, I get this. I've always wanted to do all of it. But mastering, I don't know. I think I just, it, it's it's the good thing about it. I guess the selfish thing about it is a lot of the stuff tends to be unattended. So it's a very flexible schedule. And, it, and my client's not sitting around. If I decide to rest my ears after two hours and go work in my garden or go for a walk, they're not paying for that time. Yeah, I, I would definitely agree that I think that is one of the selling perks of being a mastering engineer as opposed to recording bands and having to deal with multiple personalities every day and all of that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I could definitely see that. So uh, tell me a little bit about your studio setup now. Like, What kind of gear are you using there? What kind of gear? I guess um, I've got a, a multi-floor studio and I've got a live room, so a completely soundproof live room and a vocal booth, and then another ISO booth. So, you know, I do mostly rock stuff when I'm producing, and anything in that universe, either folk rock or country rock or hard rock or even metal, and but mostly in the rock rock category. So I've got to have drums and basses and guitar amps and instruments and pedals and all that fun stuff and multi-channels of recording, so different preamps and EQs. But for, um, for mastering and mixing, my control room, which I just redid... Uh, about two years ago, I guess, maybe a little over, um, where I do most of my work when I'm not recording is um, I've got the Barefoots in here. So the Barefoots and the Avocet and uh, 
so and these uh, Sennheiser HD 650s, I just got sent uh, from my buddies down at Sweetwater. I just got the Clarity M from TC Electronic for it's like an analyzer. Cool. It's, it's, ba- it's basically like lo- looks like a little tablet, and then it hooks up to your computer, or directly out of the Avocet for monitoring, um, you know, checking phase and checking your levels and all that sort of fun stuff. So I just started playing with that last week, and um, what else? How do you what like else? having that in front of you all the time? Like being it's able fun. to see all the waves and stuff. Yeah, it's pretty fun because it doesn't take up space on my screen. Um, I've got a three-screen system here, so it's not really that big of a deal. But the fact that I can just put it over there and I can touch it and I can reset and I can switch to different uh, viewing modes with the touch of a button and I don't have to have a, a plug-in open on my screen is is pretty nice. But it's great. I was really surprised with it. It's this super solid build. I'll give a little plug to them. Um, I was expecting it to be kind of plasticky, but it's not. It's a super solid build and looks it's built like a little tank so yeah it's can, fun. You, can you comment a little bit about um what it is that you're looking for when you're looking at those analyzers um i'm either looking for things in eq that is popping out i'm looking for a dynamic range i'm looking if uh you know how loud the mix is getting or the master is getting uh like luffs yeah luffs or luffs targets um yeah things like that but generally Generally, what I would use an analyzer for in mastering and or mixing would be to see what's happening, what's popping out. You know, if there's some rogue low mids or some low low uh, frequency popping out on, say, the bass or something that I need to tuck in with some surgical EQ or, you know, what's happening with the sibilance or where the vocals are getting too harsh, that kind of thing. So I like to use EQs, even if I don't use EQs, um, to actually affect the sound, I always like to use an EQ that I can see an analyzer and I can see what's going on. I know they say engineers, not engine eyes, but I do like to use my eyes and find out what's going on. So, um, yeah, so I use, I tend to use something like that, even if I, I'll find the frequency that I want and I'll, I, sometimes I'll even pull in another plugin and dial it in with the other plugin if I prefer the sound of that plugin. That's awesome. But I did, so yeah, that's what I would get out of an analyzer. That's cool. Yeah, I'm a big, like, uh, I definitely love analyzers, and I think that they're super important, especially, like, in smaller studio setups, because there's so much that, you know, unless you have a perfectly set up room or amazing, like you said, you have, you've got barefoots, which are amazing speakers, and people would kill for that. Um, but if you don't have, like, a super high-end system, at least analyzers allow you to understand what's going on in your mix. Absolutely, yeah. Like, this room, I shot this room after, it was designed by this guy in Montreal, Nicolas Grou, and he's designed over, like, 50 studios, probably more at this point. So, and it was built out by Pat Sayers and his buddy, uh, and uh, and myself and my dad kind of finished a lot of the stuff. So the room is a great room. It's really well-tuned. There's a ton of bass trapping all in the ceiling. It's a complete bass trap. There's, you can see it right above me where I'm pointing. So the, the whole the whole length of this room, it's a long, narrow room. So that's whole thing's a bass trap. Then I've got mass-loaded vinyl traps for half of them on the walls. And then I've got the other, you can't see it, but the cockpit sort of goes in a little bit more narrow. It kind of gets a little wider as it goes to the window behind my speakers. And those are just like what you would, call regular Roxel uh, panels. So it's really well treated. And then I got windows on either side, which helps with the low end passing through the windows. I'm not like in a concrete um, rectangle. So the room itself sounds really good, but there's still a couple little things. Like I shot the room after I was done building it. 
and uh, there's still a little couple little anomalies, but I know where I know what they are. Yeah, well, that's just as important, right? And I, I think that's one of those things that, again, analyzers come in handy for because you can see that that stuff is there, but you're you might not hear it. So yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like I work depending on the time. Like if I'm working at night or. Uh, I, I love working with my HD 650s. Um, so if I have those on and then I'll, I'll flip to the barefoots and then I'll hear the room, right? And if there's a little bump in the, you know, in the low mids, I'm like, oh, I, I reach for my EQ. I was like, oh, wait a minute. It's the room. <laughs> you know, so sometimes I, st uh, even after a couple of years in this room, I still kind of trick myself to thinking like, oh, okay, I got to fix that. And you're like, no, no. And sure enough, like you said, you check the analyzers and, uh, there you go. Yeah, well, like the biggest part of the biggest part of creating mixes that translates is just like really understanding what you're hearing out of your speakers and out of your room, you know, and you make adjustments accordingly. Because if you're just trying to make things sound great in your room, it's not going to sound good outside of it. Exactly. It took me a while too. Um, the and when I rebuilt the room, which is a complete change, I was also putting the barefoots in at the same time, and the avocet. So I had to. It's not. It's not like I'd been on these speakers for 10 years and then I was switching the room out. So all the variables had changed. So it took me a little while to figure out what was actually happening and what was listening to. Although I do have experience with the barefoots at my last job, but the rooms were horrible. So I knew them a little bit, but not as well as I could have for the environment that they were in. So I definitely have experience listening to barefoots on a really good room. And I have <laughs> experience with barefoots in a really bad room. And you might as well... You know, you might as well throw them in the garbage by, <laughs> by trying to use them in a bad room. You know, there's not much you can do with it. Yeah, there's a point where like having speakers that are that big and that powerful, like if you have the wrong room for them, you're not you're not going to get the benefits of them. Yeah, the the story, I guess, or the the analogy that I that I've used before with people when they find out how much I spend on speakers, which is just guys that don't know what barefoots are. And they ask, you know, I really like your speakers. Uh, how, you know, how much were they? So when you tell them, you know, you could have either bought like a secondhand car or a, or a really nice <laughs> motorboat or some jet skis or something like that. So when they find out, it's like, well, I sunk all this money into my room and the room is like the Autobahn and if you don't have, a, you know, a fast car to drive on them, then one is kind of useless without the other. So the room is like, is the highway and the uh, the barefoots are the, the race car. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. I like that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> You'd mentioned um, you've got quite a bit of analog gear there. And I was wondering what your take is on analog gear these days. Like, is there still a need for analog gear when it comes to mastering when so much of our industry is shifting to digital? Yeah, I'd say I'd say yes and no. It depends on what you mean by analog gear, and I think I think you I know what you mean. Like you're not talking about converters or speakers or headphones or your room. Yeah, you like, need all of those things. Yeah. So, but we already touched on that stuff. But um, I I don't I don't believe you need outboard analog gear like compressors and EQs to make a good master. Uh, they definitely can impart their own great character, but it's not critical these days. And I even know a lot of the biggest mastering engineers, and they don't necessarily use their analog gear that often anymore. Mm -hmm. But it's a it's a great marketing tool at this point, but <laughs> ultimately kind of unnecessary. And even some other people, um, they said if I was to do it all over again, I definitely wouldn't buy all that analog gear. Yeah. So, but working inside the box is totally comparable these days to you know maybe not ten years ago, but it's definitely caught up over the last years. And I think the technology definitely has arrived. And uh, but working and working analog is also not the most productive workflow. 
and it also makes recalls a pain, and that's really not my workflow. Um, I do a lot of, you know, recalls and little touches. I'll work with the band until they're absolutely happy, and usually it just goes through Rev 2. I'm not doing more than, um, say, one or max two revisions. Uh, I'd say mostly one revision at, at most, but if need be, when someone comes back and, hey, you know, the little low end, I could use a little more, a little less of it on the ninth song on the album. And sorry, it's a pain. It's, and it's, I was just like, it's not a pain. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, more, I'm more than happy to go and do it for you because we're working mostly inside the box. It just, or a hybrid system makes sense these days. And the only outboard gear I'd say that I still have on my list is a summing mixer. And, um, Maybe, uh, you know, a compressor like Shadow Hills or an SSL or a 250 or something like that. And maybe an EQ, like it would be great to have the curve bender. Mm -hmm. But, uh, and the summing mixer, maybe the, uh, the 5059 satellite I'm kind of looking at, the Rupert Neve stuff or a Chandler or an Equinox would be cool. So those are the things that, I mean, it never ends, as you know, here, <laughs> I just got, it's an addiction. I just got a bunch of compressors and EQs and preamps um, dropped at my place over the last two weeks that I'm going to be trying out and having fun with. And they're just sitting here for another couple of weeks until I have a recording session. So I'm doing like three in, in a few weeks. But yeah, so I still love, I use, I tend to use analog gear more in the tracking and production stage and some, you know, and mixing as well. But uh yeah, I, I definitely don't have anything against people that use analog. I don't think it totally works for me to be completely analog. In the box is great, and uh, but maybe I'll change my tune. Yeah, when I when I buy a curve bender and sink a bunch of money into that, <laughs> I, that's what I kind of feel like. The people that have spent all this money on they're they're the ones justifying it because they're also justifying their higher rates. You know, like hey, you need this, you need that. You know, I've just spent you know whatever, you know, yeah. I just spent eight grand on a compressor. Uh, it's the best thing. And you need to come work with me and you need to spend <laughs> a lot of money working with me, uh, when it's, when it's not really that necessary. Yeah. I always wonder when I hear people like that, it's like, well, is it really going to make my recordings that much better? Or are you just saying that to help me pay off your bills? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think could, could be a bit of both, but, uh, yeah, I have nothing against, uh, that stuff. And I, I do love working in a hybrid system, but digital is great. And it's just so convenient. And these days you just got to be, especially for me, if I'm doing, uh, you know, a podcast one day and I'm doing restoration and another, or I'm going from mixing to mastering to recording and I'm jumping between three projects in a day. Um, yeah, you got to be able to just open a session and away we go. Yeah. So you mentioned that you like to mix or master a lot more in the box these days. And I'm with you. I, I think in the box stuff is great. And for all the reasons you just mentioned, um, but you also mentioned that you do occasionally do a hybrid setup. So in what scenarios would you actually go hybrid and go out to those analog compressors? Yeah, I, I guess, it, I guess it's just a feel you get when you're working on the music. Um, it's yeah, just sometimes, you know, when you're listening to something, you don't think I, I think I'd like to try this. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, it's also the luxury of time. You know, if you're pressed for a project or if I can sit with a project for a couple of days, which is what I tend to like to do. It's not the best business practice because I definitely put in a lot more time than I'm paid for for my projects typically. Um, you like to think that they even out, but usually I like to sit with things if I can and rest my ears and come back to them and not rush. If someone wants a rush job, I'll do it. Um, 
I don't have a problem with that. But usually when a client's, when clients come to me and like, when do you need these back? When realistically, you know, I could jump on it tomorrow or in two days, clear some spots in my schedule, or I can get it to you next week. And I find most of the time people are uh, totally down with that. And they may or may not know, I probably should advertise a little bit more that I'm actually, it actually, you know, it's in their best interest to let me take a little longer on the project. Uh, because I, I don't know, I got into music. It's a business for me, but I got into it because I love helping people make their art and I'm an artist as well, or, you know, musician, artist, songwriter, that sort of thing, even if I'm not currently practicing. So, uh, so yeah, so I guess it's just when, when the project calls for it, I'll, I'll switch it up. But, um, yeah, usually I like staying in the box. Yeah. So then how long would it normally take you to master a song? Uh, that's a good question. I guess that, uh, uh, the general, like, I guess the general answer you hear from people is like, oh, an hour. I would say it's probably more for me. And it's the more, say, if you're working on an album, obviously the first song could take a couple hours just to get it going. Like over the period of the project, it might take me a couple hours. Um, that's why I like doing unintended stuff because I can, you know, absorb that cost, that time. Time is money for people. So, I would say that maybe an hour to get around it, but overall going back to it, changing things, and then it evens out over the project because some of the songs, if they're all produced in the same place and mixed by the same person, you sort of say, well, I can use a lot of these settings and copy them over to the next song and that'll, ha that'll help save me 15 minutes from setting everything up. Yeah, I'll probably take things in and out of the chain you know, it's like maybe I'm not using all the EQs I was using. Maybe I'm using a different compressor. Maybe for this song, I'm not using a tape emulation like the ETR-102. Um, maybe this song, I do like the backs. And the other song, I don't like the backs. Or, you know, usually uh, the things that will change in my stack will probably be uh, EQs and compressors. Uh, limiter usually always stays the same. Um, curve bender is probably appears somewhat even if it's just a half db on a couple things the curve benders always seems to be there for the last couple of years and i love the shadow hills mastering compressor the manly makes an appearance fairly often the very mu and uh got several eqs that i use but uh yeah that's awesome so so yeah overall i I'd, i guess i'd have to say the hour but that's not really uh realistic yeah <laughs> and not not to mention the fact that I do a lot of restoration as well. So it's like fixing all the, uh, what did I call the undesirable artifacts in a song? The mouth noises, the clicks, the bad edits, if there's hiss or whatever, like bad hiss, not good rock and roll hiss. Mm -hmm. um, things like that. Sometimes I'll go in, in using RX, which I love. Um, pretty, pretty much probably wouldn't want to live without RX. Uh, you know, I go in there and fix sibilance because sometimes the way I deal with sibilance in RX uh, works a lot better than my DSer, or I use a combination of both. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so that adds to the time, which is kind of like a hidden cost, which on my side that people don't see the extra effort in it. Because I, I never want to be someone that just does like a bing, bang, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am mastering service. Like these guys that say they're super productive and pumping out tracks. And I was like... How much are you really giving a shit about <laughs> yeah, these I'll songs? I'll master your song for $5. <laughs> yeah, or even the guys that charge, you know, yeah. a, fair, a fair rate. Or the guys that just like pump things out. I'm like, how are you really, you know, giving this song what it deserves? And I just couldn't, I can't, I can't put out something that 
I'm not saying I've never put out anything horrible like 10 years ago when I didn't know what I was doing, <laughs> when I'd only been doing this for five or 10 years. Um, but I at least tried my best, you know, and I can never not try my best at things. I think things in general, but uh, for mastering too. So I love, it's like I said, it's not the best business practice because I could be doing a lot more work and not saying no to a lot of things, which I tend to do on occasion. Uh, I try not to be overwhelmed with work, um, but yeah. <laughs> so that's a, that's an interesting point though that you bring up of of saying no because I think that that's something a lot of people really struggle with. So what scenarios would you say no to somebody for? Like I, I think it's really important for people to know like when when they're when to say yes and when to say no. Yeah, I mean that's a it's a tough question and it's and it's it sounds like a jerky thing to do to turn down something but um and I it doesn't ha and the music doesn't have to be great. You know, I've worked with um a lot of big bands and I've worked with a lot of medium-sized bands and I've worked with a lot of, uh, you know, bands that are just starting out that, you know, might be a little green, I guess is the polite way to say it. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's not necessarily to do with that because I always find, um, I always find joy in helping people bring their music to life, you know, in whatever small capacity that, that I have, um, you know, either producer, engineer, mixer, mastering engineer, whatever small or even doing restoration for something. So so it doesn't have to be great, but sometimes like the the things that I've been saying no to more recently are maybe some of those guys that are a little bit more green and they say, hey, we want you to mix our album and they send it to me and it's just the guitars are out of tune, uh, the vocals are pretty rough, the drum, the drummer, the timing issues are really bad. The, the recording is very... Um, it's rough. It's a, a demo at best, and if not, maybe a little worse than a demo. So, um, and you don't want to, you know, break any hearts or hurt any feelings by saying, "Hey, I don't really think that this is ready um, to be put out." So, like things like that, which I probably wouldn't enjoy working on, and I don't think it's worth them spending good money on a proper mixing engineer and mastering engineer at that point. So I, I find the way that you say, I say no mostly is you just price yourself out. Yeah. You know, like, cause I work with, um, I've got like more flat rates for certain things. Um, but I'll, you know, I'll do deals for indie artists and if they're not on a, a if they're on a tight budget or if they're uh, not in a rush to get things, it's hard for someone to say, Hey, I need this stuff in two days, uh, drop everything you're doing and <laughs> I want a really good deal. So there's, you know, I, I work out deals with people, um, on occasion, um, but yeah, so if I think that's the easiest way to say no is either you just tell someone if you're not interested in the material or if you're just really too busy, um, like, Hey, I would love to work with you, but you, you, um, you recommend them to someone else and, uh, or you say, I'm really too busy. I can't work with you for a month and a half, which often, you know what it's like if you're booked on several projects and you really don't have time, then you just say, and they can wait sometimes they'll say, okay, cool. We'll wait. Um, so you either do that or you price yourself out. You know, you say, I'll do it for, this is what it's going to take, the budget to take it. And if they really want to do it, well, then you'll find a way. And if not, then they'll be like, wow, that's really way too expensive. <laughs> and, you know, we'll we'll go elsewhere. So yeah. that's, those are kind of like the polite ways to say no. And it just, it's better for everybody because, um, when you when you when you're not overstressed and you have a lot of time to work on things and you really care about the music you're working on, which is the stuff that I'm interested in working on, um, I mean I don't want to scare anyone away and sort of say like I'm a real uh, 
you know, music snob, which I'm not. I like all types of different music and at all different levels of music. And I work on, you know, like I said, amateur musicians to pros. But, um, you know, you want someone's head in there. And if, and if I'm way too busy and stressed and I don't want, I don't like cutting corners. So there, it's better off just having someone's head in the game and you want to be paying that person the right amount. So their head's in the game. Like, do you really want to pay, you know, uh, someone who's painting, painting your house five bucks an hour to, you know, what kind of job are they going to do? Yeah. You know, or are they going to take three weeks to get it done? You know, all that stuff. Maybe that's a weird analogy, but, uh, no, I see what you're saying there. Yeah. Yeah. I think also, um, kind of an interesting thing that comes out of, you mentioned like kind of overpricing yourself. I think, uh, it's also an interesting time when you do that to see what people are willing to pay for your services as well. Yeah. Because <laughs> a lot of people under underprice themselves and then they get super busy. And then it's only once they start saying, okay, well, I have to charge twice as much now to do this project that I need to do last minute or I'm in a rush or whatever. It's only then that they realize like, oh, wait a minute, like people are willing to pay this much. Like maybe I do need to bump up my rates. And then, you know, there's this uh, situation that you can get yourself in sometimes where you can work less and earn more as a result of it. Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, that 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 can happen fairly fairly regularly, I guess. And then and then you get rid of the tire kickers. For sure. Well, that's super important, right? Cuz the last thing you want to be doing is constantly saying no to people because you can't stand their music or their tire kickers and, you know, you can eliminate a lot of that just by pricing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So what's, um, what is your mindset going into a new project? Like where do you typically start or how do you start and what sort of things are you typically listening for within your mix, within the mixes that you're mastering? Yeah. Mastering wise, I'd say, um, just getting a general feel, laying out all the tracks. If they're, you know, it's surprisingly how often there's no sequence. So I just kind of throw them up, you know, maybe alphabetically at first and then move them around. Sometimes people need help having it sequenced or they'll say, I'll get back to you. So I just jump around the songs. I typically I put everything in one session on on different tracks and space them out so I can jump around my session from one song to the next and uh, and see what I've got and then I try to maybe find the best sounding song or if the artist has said hey this is the first single I might start with that. But often it's whatever I feel is like the best production and best represents the collection of songs. But if, say, if it's a single, I'll be checking for EQ imbalances, like if there's congested low end or low mids, um, harsh vocals, sibilants, harsh cymbals. And after I adjust things with like a corrective EQ or a couple of them uh, in series, like a linear, linear phase EQ to start with for certain things and then move on to another EQ to maybe catch maybe a more dynamic EQ to catch certain like bass notes or to rein in some vocals or rein in sibilants following that. Um, usually the problem elements tend to be vocals or the bass guitar or the kick, you know, there's no, there's not enough definition between the kick and the bass. Um, then I see what's happening with the snare and uh, guitars, but um, I'm a singer as well. So I tend to spend a lot of time, I wouldn't say I'm not being unfair to the other instruments, but I make I definitely like to make sure that the the vocals are right up there and present and not too harsh because a lot of people are putting a lot of uh, uh, saturation on their vocals too, which could really shred your ears once you bring the levels up. So I try to like to deal with all that stuff very often with dy dynamic EQ, and then I'll make up for it later with like um, 
the curve bender or something like that, uh, which I really like what it does on vocals and how easily it brings out those um, those certain frequencies, either at 1.8 or was it 1.8 or 2.8, 3.6 or even 4.2 sometimes. And I work a lot in MS, so I'm doing a lot of stuff in MS. So I'm just figuring out the lay of the land. So I'm checking the sides, I'm checking the mids, depending on if I'm doing EQ. Rarely, more rarely do stuff with the compression, which is like the next stage after 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 do, dealing with my EQ, it's the next stage is more of the compression. So, and uh, I use a couple different compressors generally. Uh, they're doing different things. Um, and then to use tape or to not use tape, um, I used to use tape all the time. I got the ATR-102 and other other tape machines and you just go crazy. And I was like, it sounds great on everything. And then you kind of, <laughs> with experience and over time, you're like, no, it doesn't. Um, so, <laughs> so I find I'm using it less and less over the years, but sometimes it's great. And so, yeah, you're experimenting with the different things, different EQs, different compressors, what worked last time might not work this time. Um, and yeah, different, different emulations of the tape, you know? Do I want to be at 15 or do I want to be at 30? And what tape formulation do I want to use? And um, yeah, so I do that. And then you do the the final EQ to sweeten things and um, final limiter adjustments. And uh, and then I guess, and, you, and through this whole process, you're going back because if you, then you add a compressor, it might change something that's happening earlier. And so you're going back through your stack and jumping around. And the stack, I don't know if everyone calls it stack or mastering chain or... Just your your signal chain, I guess, yeah. Yeah, so I'm jumping around. And then lastly, I would do uh, any automation. So, cool. which is something that you really can't do in analog, which we were speaking about earlier. So that's one of the things I love working uh, digit like in the box. Because uh, I, I will draw in a lot of automation and I will go, you know, I don't need it for every song necessarily, but the songs that really need that attention to detail, I can go in there and I can just turn on this EQ at this, just for these words, and I can increase, <laughs> you know, <laughs> in, increase the attack time, you know, just, just for these kick hits. So, you know, so the limiter doesn't crap out and, you know, like all these, all these different things. Um, yeah, I find myself automating a lot of the, uh, like noise removal tools and that kind of stuff. Cause like, especially at the beginnings of songs or at the end of songs, you get like those amps that just ring out and like have a like super nasty hiss sometimes. And yeah, you know, sometimes you just want to like automate the threshold on that, clean it up a little bit. And once everything kicks in, you can get rid of it and, you know, bring it back in at the very end when everything's ringing out, that kind of stuff. Yeah. What are you using, uh, to do that? I typically use the, uh, the waves X noise. Okay. Yeah. I, I I just, I've always been on the whole restoration bundle there and I really like it. Yeah. I haven't used it in a long time, but that was a lifesaver for me, uh, for years, like going back to like 15 years or something. I remember using that all the time. So in the end, like after you've done all of the stuff you just explained, like what ultimately makes a great mastered mix for you? Like, when do you know you're done? Oh, um, yeah. When do you know you're done? Well, yeah, because there's a lot of second guessing that goes on. I think it's pretty normal. You're like working on a master and it's sounding really great to you. Let's just say I'm working on a single to make it simple. So you got a sim, you know, and if it's a new client, you're like, fuck, you know, I don't know if he's going to like this or not, or what are his tastes. And sometimes you'll send two masters, uh, you know, so they can have a choice because you don't want them to be like, this guy's out to lunch and never Mm -hmm. hear from them again. I mean, that hasn't happened, but there's, there's always the, the stress of that and 
when we used to work with a lot of the major labels is like high pressure situations, right? So there's there's that like um, post traumatic stress from all that stuff, you know, <laughs> where you where where things are very serious and uh, it's you know it's life or death. Um, so I think that that creeps into my general work where you, you're super stoked on something and then you go rest your ears or if it's the next day or whatever it was in your, in your workflow that day, you might come back to it the next day and you're like, wow, I was really stoked on this yesterday, but I'm not really sure. So you tweak a little bit more, but at some point you just have to be confident and you say like, Hey man, like slap yourself in the face and say, send this to the client, put a little note with it. Um, say, here you go. And you just let them know, say, Hey, if there's anything, if I'm, if, uh, this, this is sounding great to me and this is what I'm really feeling for this. If, uh, if I've gone in a different direction, just, you know, pick up the phone or shoot me an email. Um, anything can be changed. I'm happy to do any revisions. Uh, if you're happy with it, great as well. So I think it's just all about communication with the client, right? So if you've been working, there's some guys that I've known my whole life that I work with, and there's there's new clients that come along, so you always want to make sure that you that you're accessible. And I've had people come to me from big mastering engineers as well, um, and they say I just can't get a hold of them. I can't have a dialogue. I want to have a back and forth, and you know I want to be able to do three revisions because I'm extremely, uh, I guess anal is not the best way to say, it, but they're extremely particular and they have great ears but they can't do what I do, but they want me to translate it. So there's some guys that I work with and we go back and forth, back and forth. And the other guys are gonna be like, no, this is my master. See you later. I might do one change, but I'm on to the next thing. So yeah, I think, I think, yeah, I guess you just have to trust your instincts is the short answer to that, to knowing when you're done. And then as long as you leave it open and you communicate with your client to say, hey, any changes you want, like come back to me, I'm here like we're not done until you're happy and they feel more comfortable and they're not like, you know, they're not scared to ask you for any revisions. So yeah. I don't want to ever put something out where someone's unhappy with my work, you know? So luckily I don't have to do revisions till the cows come home. Uh, maybe I wouldn't have implemented that uh, years and years ago when I probably was in a situation when I just started out that I would probably have to do a million revisions if I offered them. But uh, yeah, luckily I don't have to, but I would be more than happy to do that because yeah, putting something out into the world where the client <laughs> isn't happy with the end result. Uh, that's, I don't know. That's not, I don't think, yeah, <laughs> I don't think I'll take that to my grave in terms of regrets, but uh, it, it would weigh on me. So yeah, yeah I'm happy. Well, you never want someone to leave unhappy. They, they, they certainly won't come back. That's for sure. Yeah. The, I guess my end Probably going along with that, my my process, the workflow that we've touched on before is, yeah, get my files, organize them, listen and do an evaluation, see what I've got, uh, choose a starting point, like the song, uh, do the actual mastering, uh, send it to the client for review, uh, do the revisions if needed, and then I do the restoration, which is like an important part of my flow because I'm sure uh, a lot of mastering engineers and or probably maybe even mix engineers have this problem too, where they're like, we redid the bass. And then you have to like <laughs> retune the bass or fix the edits on the bass or whatever. So mastering, it's an even bigger deal because if I've spent, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes on a song, sometimes fixing all the little things that need to be fixed, you'd be amazed about how, uh, how much time can be spent on a, on a restoration job, um, just for one song. 
um, then I've, I've had a, f- a few times where the client has come back and say, hey, we got a new mix. We just fixed the mix and hopefully that's not a problem. And you, what are you supposed to say, right? Yeah. You know, like you kind of. Uh, it, it, it's always that innocent, like, hey, we just made a big adjustment. Uh, that's cool, right? That shouldn't affect things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. We just added uh, horns to this whole section. Yeah. It's not going to change the mix, is it? Or the master? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, even so, even if it's a minor change, right? Something, and I've got to say yes, right? And I'm happy to do so, you know, put happy in quotations. But um, I'm happy to do so. But as long as I haven't, if I have to go and spend another half an hour listening to the mix, making sure that they, because they might have changed other things that they didn't tell you about. Mm-hmm. Say, no, no, we just adjusted the bass here or the kick or whatever it is. There was too much kick, so we brought that out. And uh, so you still have to listen to it. You can't just pop a file in and run it through again, because that would be unprofessional. But uh, having to do restoration twice, that's rough, especially if it's something that (laughs) I've had to spend a half an hour working on. So yeah, I saved that to the end. That was a bit of a tangent, but I saved that to the end and then I print the final master, send it to the client, get their final approval and archive and back up the session. So I'm just curious, like when you you price your, your songs for mastering, are you telling people that like obviously they can make revisions and you want them to be happy, but are you generally trying to steer them in like, are you saying, well, for this price, I'll include X number of revisions and then anything else is an additional cost or like, or is that just like your price is your price and whatever yeah. it takes? Yeah, it depends. If it's full price, it's, um, it's uh, you get the full course meal. And some sometimes if someone is in a, look looking for a really good deal, then, you know, you have additional things that you might not might might not include or even with the full price there's some additional things that people just don't need unless they ask for it like you don't necessarily need a ddp but it's going to take me time uh you know I, I would say special software but it's not that special anymore it was like very expensive software when it came out that you need to actually make a ddp for people or print an actual cd and mail it off or whatever you know that kind of thing but if it's, um, you know, if they need MFIT, I'm I'm on the providers list for MFIT, so I can do MFIT masters, uh, but not ne- not not everyone needs MFIT, right? So instead of me spending time, you know, making often a, a different master and approve, going through the approval process and signing off on it, uh, I'll just ask them. So it, it's an extra charge for that. Yeah. Because um, it's, it's my time to do it. Um, other things like, like high level restoration, you know, like that could be an extra too if someone really wants a bargain basement and they don't really care. So if there's something very glaring, I'll go in and fix it in RX, but I'm not going to be spending a half an hour on a song to give them like the the best RX job that they've ever had in their life and uh, blow, yeah. their, blow their hair back. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, it's basically that. So it's, it's kind of a tiered system, um, but it's fairly simple. Yep. So when you say restoration, what exactly does that entail from your side? Right. Um, so I did, uh, I've been doing this for years and I learned it from uh, Jonathan Weiner that I mentioned earlier from Isotope. And uh, when we were taking, uh, when I was taking his mastering class at Berkeley, and this is back when R- it was RX2. So I think it's up to seven at this point. And yeah, taking out things like, like I said, undesirable artifacts and things that I feel shouldn't be there like uh, mouth clicks and pops and plosives and, um, you know, hum or bad noise um, and, yeah, bad edits, things like that. There's, sometimes you're trying to fix dropouts and bad edits and clicks 
and just weird things, string noises sometimes. Like if you're working especially on an acoustic record or instrumental record, uh, some guys are like, hey, can you do something with these string noises that are really, you know, too prominent? And I say, sure. A lot of the times I've learned, especially working with the major label stuff where I did hundreds and hundreds of stuff, uh, you know, uh, restoration jobs for that stuff where it's got to be, you know, the cream of the crop and everything has to be perfect and polished. Um, if you bring it up to the producer or the, the mixer, they can be like, whoa, I can't, there's nothing that needed to be fixed in there. And they really get their backs up. Right. So you learn to not say anything unless it's, and you yourself have to have to be the producer. So actually being a producer myself, it kind of helps because I'm like, is this musical? Is it intentional? So I have to make a judgment call, um, in terms of what I take out and what I don't. And basically the way I do it, just I have weeks and years worth of experience working, working with our ex is like, I'll take stuff. You won't know that I was there. And in the end, a lot of the work that I end up doing, the client probably would never have noticed it or heard it because he, it wasn't loud enough and it didn't come out until the master raised the level of everything and it, and it, and it came out. But yeah, you, you sort of have to uh, wear that producer hat and sort of say, if anything pulls me out of the listening experience, you can go crazy, obviously, and you can be so goddamn meticulous about removing every little thing, <laughs> and it can be a pissing contest uh, between yourself and the song in terms of like how polished I'm going to get it and perfect sounding. And not all music has to sound perfect, right? Like if you took out the hiss from like a hardcore band, or you know, you took out the noise from something, then you know, you 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 never work with those guys again. But, you know, so I have to wear that hat and sort of say, does this take me out of the experience and would it be better if it was removed? Yeah, I like I like how you put it like that, because I think that there's a lot of times when the the mixing engineer, like they don't even notice that they're making those mistakes. They don't notice that they missed that that edit point And now there's a pop or like a click or something or even though the noise is, you know really hot on a certain section of the song. So I think it's, uh, I think it's really cool what you said about, you know, does this take me out of that listening experience? Cause those are the things that you definitely need to pay attention to. Yeah. And it's, um, it's not really, I don't really see it as a, I mean, some mixing engineers may have missed some like real stuff. We were like, Jesus, what, what was going on, buddy? And you might want to, depending on your relationship with them, like I have some guys that I work with that I, it's more of an, a, a mentor capacity to that I've been worked with for years. So they'll ask me questions on a regular basis and they'll want comments on their mix. Um, so it depends on the relationship. You know, you can sort of say, hey man, like in the future, maybe your vocal tuner isn't really, it's leaving artifacts. Um, I'm not sure what you're using for that. I use this, you know, Melodyne or whatever. You maybe recommend something because they're using something from another software that might leave a ton of artifacts. Um, or, hey, check your crossfades. I don't think you crossfaded your drums. Or, you know, so if you have that relationship, go ahead and open your mouth. But um, you, you There's definitely a time and place for it. Yeah, you have to be careful and you have to be really political about it too and sensitive to some people because the, some people take this stuff very seriously. And I think it comes with age as well. Uh, cause when you start out, you think you're, uh, you're shit hot and you know everything. And <laughs> I, I kind of find it's like in, until you're 30, you know, you start in your twenties or teens and twenties and you, you think you might've gone through school and worked on a bunch of, a bunch of albums and have a bunch of experience and you know everything. And then you kind of turn 30 and you're like, Oh wow. Like you get exposed to the next level of, of this whole business and you're like, wow, that's where I can be. And some people find it really daunting. 
Um, but I find it exciting because I'm like, I haven't stopped learning. Like I'll, I'll be learning for the next 20 years, you know, which is. And the thing is like the people who are so abrasive and the ones that are just like complete assholes when they're starting off, like <laughs> they, unless they, unless they catch themselves doing it, like they typically will run themselves out of the industry before they get to that point. Like yeah. nobody wants to work with those people. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, yeah. And I think it comes with insecurities too. Right. And as you, as you age with experience and you get a little bit more humble and, um, maybe you've made a couple mistakes along the way too. You're like, oh shit, I'm not going to, I'm not going to react that way. Or, you know, I'm not going to treat people that way or something. Some of the guys, I know some guys that have come back from that and they used to have a really bad rep and now they don't anymore. And that bad rep can follow you forever. Absolutely. But, uh, but some guys get out of that and they're like, oh, you know, and he, uh, he, I heard about that guy and he's a little rough to work with him. Like, oh no, that was the old him. He's really chilled out. <laughs> so yeah, you gotta, you gotta worry about that. But it's, you know, this, this whole thing is part, um, it's part science, you know, being an engineer. Uh, there's a lot of technical things that you kind of have to know. Uh, but it's also part psychologist. For sure. And part salesman and part, you know, whatever. If you work running your own business, you have to have all these things. Definitely. So you, we talked a little bit about restoration and everything, but um, what are some of the biggest problems that you typically see in the projects that you master? Are they often like mixing problems or do they have more to do with how the instruments were recorded at the source? Yeah, good question. Um, it, it all depends, right? Some of the things you know that it's just because maybe they didn't have access to really good gear or they didn't have enough time to record. Um, but let's just say all things being equal, like inexperience, like an inexperienced mixer and or working on a tight budget. Like sometimes I'll get something from a client um, and he sent me really amazing things. And maybe the next project is like, wow, like I'm kind of surprised of the, of the quality. And, you know, that's where it falls into, well, he didn't have enough time you know, to, to do his work properly. And depending on your relationship, you might have to guess about that, or, you know, so say, well, this one sounds a little bit more demo-y than the last one that he spent two months working on or whatever. Um, so yeah. What was the question again? Um, just like what, what <laughs> problems do you typically see? Are they more mixing problems or are they typically things that you see being rushed in the tracking stage? Yeah, I think, I think both actually, I mean, they end up being the same problem in the end, but, um, yeah, it's mix, mixing issues, uh, not knowing their room, bad mixing environment. You find out they're mixing on, on headphones uh, of a certain quality or they're, they're not hearing what they should be hearing out of their speakers. They're not, you know, they don't know their room enough um, or they're just an inexperienced mixer. But um, I think what, what happens with some of the younger engineers or more inexperienced engineers too, is that they try to rush through a project. And that's, I was very guilty of that too. I used to think, Hey, these people are paying me by the hour, let's say, and I have to work as fast as possible. That sound check has to be done as soon as possible. Maybe that's from doing some live sound too. You kind of like you're under the gun, you got to get everything, um, working really quickly. And, but then in the end, you're like, I'll just fix it in the mix. And then you find out like, there's no manner there's no, there's no EQ built out there that can fix the mistakes of putting the mic in the wrong place or tune, you know, taking the half an hour to get the drums tuned up properly or, you know, or getting the right guitar tone and moving the mic around until you find it the right place or swapping out mics or swapping out pre's or, I mean, not everyone has the luxury of being able to have access 
um, to a lot of gear. And uh, certainly there's a lot more gear that I'd like to have, but over the last 20 years or so, maybe 15 years of serious uh, purchasing, um, you know, I have access. It's nice to have whatever, 30, 40 mics and a bunch of different preamps to switch out from, but not everyone has access to those things. But what you do have access to often, if you're recording on your own, uh, is time. You know, it's like spend the time if you're doing it in your jam space or at your parents' house or wherever it is, spend the time to make sure the drums are tuned and, you know, <laughs> move, move the, move the mics around. Like I, what I try to do if, if a band comes in to work with me as a producer, I'll say ahead of time. So people aren't tapping their feet or looking at their watches. Um, I'll either say it in the email beforehand and I'll remind the guys in the morning or I'll say, just sh send your drummer. If you guys are coming in separate cars, send your drummer and he can hang out with me for two hours. And then you guys can come afterwards. Uh, just so they're not, so they're aware that, hey, sound check for a full live band could take three or four hours. We might get it done in two, but you know, we might spend a half an hour tuning the drum kit, you know, and, and other things, or, you know, changing out the guitar or, you know, he thought he was going to use his amp, but then, you know, then he saw this other amp that I had in the studio and he, he's always wanted to try that or something's not working. So we swap it out. So yeah, take the time to get the source right. Absolutely. For sure. I like what you said too, about telling people to come separately because yeah, you can definitely burn people out if they're just like sitting around waiting and yep. like, you know, the singer's just there and all you're hearing for three hours is boom, boom. <laughs> you know, it's just like just tuning drums. Like, yeah. you know, by the time they're ready to sing, they're like, fuck this, I'm tired. Or they're, <laughs> or they're drunk or, or too high at that point or whatever. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. But I find that less and less, actually. It's, I don't know why, but there's less and less party happening in the studio. Which every... is probably a good thing. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I kind of, sometimes I'm shocked. It's like people won't drink or party at all during the session. And that's totally cool with me. Um, but yeah, I was like, all right, great. You know, because like, uh, man, I've had some sessions ru ruined by a drunk bass player. Oh, yeah. Like it's like, and the drummer storms off at the end of the day because you know he didn't quite blow the day, but you know the drummer was taking this very serious, and the bass player thought it was party time. Oh yeah, and they were not locking. You know, all day. Yeah, and those are the sessions that when you finally get to that bass player who's just hammered, you're just like, oh man, let's just come back another day and do it. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, yeah. there's way too much editing to do here. So I try, I try to, I do it less and less, but I've, I've definitely done in the past where I've had bad experiences, where I've said to the band, um, you know, put your producer hat on and you say, hey guys, just you know, just, just a reminder that on Friday or Saturday or Tuesday, whenever we have the session, uh, you know. Don't get drunk the night before. Like, yeah. I don't. I don't want anyone showing up hungover. You know, like uh, all, all that kind of thing. Sometimes, yeah. sometimes it's unavoidable. But uh, yeah, so if you have a hungover drummer, like, how are you supposed to get anything done that day? <laughs> <laughs> Same with singers too, right? Like, I always tell them, like, if you're a smoker, like, try your hardest not to smoke like a whole pack of cigarettes before you come right into the studio. Like, your voice is not going to sound the way it's supposed to, or you know, there's all sorts of things that it can throw off a voice. Yeah, don't chug a, a liter of uh, chocolate milk. milk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, when we first got started, you were talking a little bit about your background. And one thing that you had mentioned was that you had worked for a tech company. And um, that's something that I find really interesting about your story because I'm really fascinated in this company. Um, so that company is Lander. Uh, so I was wondering if you can just describe ne what Lander of. is. Never, I never heard of him. <laughs> yeah, never heard of him. 
Uh, yeah, Lander is a is based on a technology. If we want to go way back, based on technology that came out of England uh, from uh, from Queen Mary University over there, uh, and one of the students there kind of took this technology over here and started a company with a Montreal guy. And it was at first, it was a online mixing platform. And the company was called Mix Genius. And that's when I got the call to start there. I think the company had been going for about a year. And I was brought in because they had started to do mastering as well. And then they were going to do mastering first and then move on to mixing. So, so I was brought in as a mastering engineer to run the audio team and help get the technology uh, ship shape before uh, we launched. Uh, we launched in 2000, early 2014, I guess, something like that, maybe in May or something. Can't recall exactly. It's all a blur. And so, yeah, so the, the mixing technology kind of went by the wayside and the focus was changed and eventually the name was changed because the product was called Lander, left and right. Ah, <laughs> didn't ever put that together. I love the reaction too because uh, it's less and less that people like that light bulb goes off. But, <laughs> but I lo- I love seeing it. I love seeing it happen. Um, yeah, I think that's Stuart Mansbridge, who's one of the co-founders of the company, actually came up with that name. If I'm not mistaken. So yeah, eventually. So over that period of time, we, we realized we were given. I think that we we told ourselves that it might take you know half a year or something to to get a hold on mastering naively. And we realized how much, how complicated it would be. And the company, and we started getting traction with it. So the company changed from Mixed Genius to Lander officially. And uh, yeah, it's been, it's been like that ever since. Yeah. So who would you say is the target audience for Lander? I'd say amateur musicians, hobbyists. Yep. And why would you specify amateur? Uh, just because I think where... I think there's a limit to what technology in general can do, can help, uh, can help get people there. But, um, yeah, it's more of, so if, if there's something, I think someone, someone else said this years ago, and it's something if you spent years and months and weeks toiling away in the studio, writing, mixing, um, your tracks, are you really going to trust it to fate, you know, putting it into a, an algorithm and, uh, yeah, so I think the amateur musicians tend to gravitate towards that. It's also lack of knowledge as well, like not knowing, never worked working with a mastering engineer, not knowing the difference of where a mastering engineer can take your product. And it's kind of like what people get used to. Right? If you've never if you've never heard the the other thing or if you've never seen the other thing if we're we're talking about what a uh a pro photographer could do, let's say, to your wedding pictures as compared to um, your buddy who just happens to have an XLR camera and offers to photograph your wedding. You know, you might see the shots and be like, oh, it's great. You know, the, the content is still there. You know, it's still it's still pictures of you. So your song is still there. and But it's not where a professional could take it. So for a lot of people, that's just good enough. And they don't have the budget, too, to use a professional engineer. There's there's a whole variety of reasons why someone might want to use an online mastering service. Um, but yeah, I mean, for a lot of cases, it does a good job. Um, but a lot of cases, I'm assuming that it might not do a good job. Um, I know a lot of people that have tried it that have gone elsewhere afterwards. 
Um, yeah. Yeah. So what I, I like, I like the analogy that you put of like the photographer doing your wedding and having the cell phone picture versus the, the pro. What would you say would really differentiate the professional from Lander? Like what elements can the pro bring to the equation? Uh, right. Um, well, I've got like a quote from Ian Shepard, um, who you, I'm sure you know. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. And uh, he says, it's not mastering, but rather audio enhancement. And I think that that's kind of, that's kind of a way that I saw it as well. Um, so mastering is a whole different process that you're really digging into things. So sometimes it's like a Photoshop filter or a, an mm -hmm. Instagram filter, and it's kind of like it's enhancing it. You know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes this filter looks great on this lighting and this, you know, where you were in the room and, oh, you put this filter and the grass really pops, you know, but you don't have those, you don't even have those uh, necessarily you don't have the ability for some of these mastering services to actually ch try those different filters out until it's the one that pops for you. But, um, and, and, uh, yeah, there's just so much more that a mastering engineer can do. I mean, it's a, it's a dialogue between you and the mastering engineer. It's the years of experience that your mastering engineer has. It's his taste in music. Uh, it's a, it's a set of different tools, right? Like I said before, sometimes you use this, sometimes you use that. And it's just the intelligence of a machine versus the intelligence of a of a, a seasoned pro, I guess, what you can do, how far you can dig in, where are the problem frequencies, um, you know, changing ratios of compressors um, to use the tape or to not use the tape, like we spoke about before, like making those intelligent decisions. Um, I'm not sure if a machine will ever be able to do that sort of thing, but... Um, Another quote from from my old professor uh, Jonathan Weiner, it's um, he said when you when you interact with Lander, it has nothing to do with art. Lander is not about a creative act, and uh, Lander is more maybe the commodity of passing something through a box. It's like pulling up a preset and not listening to what you're doing and just taking the output and going on your merry way. <laughs> you know, so no, I, I think that's very true. I think it's the same thing. Like he touched on plugins there, but I think that that's such a a true thing because so many people just use plugins. Like when they're learning how to mix, they they go to the compressor and they go to like, oh, I'm mixing the snare, so I'm going to use the snare preset, and then I'm going to use the kick preset, and it might enhance the sound, but it's not going to get you the optimal sound necessarily for your specific mix. Yeah, and and in, in certain cases, it might sound good, right? It yeah. might come back sounding sounding good and completely usable. So what what's the harm, you know? But uh, to further to finish, like Jonathan's quote, something like, "I don't think there's anything objective ob objectionable about Lander uh, in and of itself." But if we're involved in music making because we love the craft and we love and we love what we're making and we want to learn and do it better and have control over what we're doing, we're probably not going to use Lander. And uh, you're probably going to want to try to do it, figure it out for yourself or, you know, um, or, you know, hire a professional to do it. But it's not always in the cards, right? Um, the, the, the music might, the material might not always merit, you know, um, hiring a pro a and, um, yeah, and you might not even, in most cases, you don't know the difference. Yeah, no, I think that that's... 
uh, as we're all amazing know, points. If if you if you don't have the experience, you don't know the difference. Mm-hmm. It's not that uh, they would sound different because hopefully in most cases it'll sound better if you use a pro. Yeah, it's like I remember I remember when I was first starting off and I found like the normalization button. And I was like, oh, this makes everything sound better. It's louder. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, that's that must be mastering. And then you realize, okay, well, like a mastering engineer can actually do so much more to it. That human factor is definitely a big part of it. Yeah, or um, or how long did I use an L2 for before mm-hmm. I realized that it's ruining so much, so many of my masters like for, <laughs> for the first year, you know, like you spend money on a good, good limiter, people. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the L2 is a classic example. It's like, yeah, I'm in the same boat. I used to use it all the time and make my mixes sound louder and supposedly better. And then I was like, what am I actually doing to this? Like, where did all my snare transients go? Yeah, like, and once you start realizing like what it's actually doing to your tracks, then you can you can find the time and place to use that tool. Yeah, that's the thing, right? It's It's the lack of experience. Like you don't know what, you haven't become a professional listener. Like mastering engineers and mixing engineers were professional listeners, you know, and we've developed we've developed our ears and being able to deconstruct a mix in our heads, you know, over time, over years. And where this, where's that problem frequency? When you start out, you don't know what the heck's going on. You don't know, you don't even know, necessarily know what a good kick drum's supposed to sound like when you're recording. Mm-hmm. You know, like you just stick the mic where you thought it should be because you saw it in the magazine. And it worked on that particular kick drum with that com- particular drummer, so you're just putting it where you think, and then you then you're stuck in the mix trying to fix it. So until like you've you know done a lot of critical listening, uh, which is a big part of our job, and and deconstructing elements of a mix, then you know you you don't know. It's not it's no fault of anyone's that they they don't hear those things, and maybe you know maybe they're actually better off, you know, in, in some way because. Uh, I, I, st- I still can pull myself in and out of like being critical listener and just being like enjoying, enjoying the song, mm-hmm. but sometimes it's not easy. Some people are just like, fuck man, like, oh, this mix doesn't sound great. I'm just, man, the song's great. Just enjoy it. Yeah. Turn, turn off your, your professional engineer, uh, mode for, for one second and just enjoy the music. For sure. I think that's huge. Like at the end of the day, like I'm, I'm not opposed to Lander. And, uh, and I think that there definitely is an audience for it. And I think that sometimes, like you said, like sometimes it's going to work well. And, uh, you know, I would certainly encourage people to try it and to also don't just only try Lander or don't just only try a mastering engineer, like try both and see where the benefits are of each and when to use each. And, and I say that as a mastering engineer, like I've had a lot of people who've, who have been like, Hey, we want to do a shootout between you and Lander. And I'm like, cool, let's do it. Like, at the end of the day, pick whatever one you like, whatever one sounds best to you. That's, that's the winner in your mind. You know, yeah. I th- fortunately I have won most of those shootouts, <laughs> but yeah, uh, I hope so. Mike, yeah. Right. On. But, 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 um, but it's one of those things. It's just like, y- you have to try it out. It's the same reason why you would go to one producer versus another. They're going to give you a different flavor. So, you know, pick the one that you ultimately like. Yeah. The, um, the on my podcast, the unfamous podcast, uh, there was uh, the next episode that's coming out is um, Grammy winning mastering engineer, or sorry, Grammy winning mixing engineer and, and a producer in his own right, um, which is Mixer Man Eric Serafin. Yep, and he uh, he he has a little rant in that 
So you should listen to that. I'll se- I'll send you a link when it comes out. <laughs> yeah, I'll definitely check that out. It's it's basically that the once that someone gets used to that sound, that they can't kind of unhear it. You know, like that they become that's oh that's what it should sound like. That's what mastering is. And then so he has a funny little anecdote about someone working. He was working on a. He was producing something with someone, and he's like, hey, what about this lander thing? And he said, don't do it. Don't do it. And the guy went and did it, and then he got used to that sound of that master. So, And he used then he used another mastering engineer. Eric had this guy. His regular guy was too busy, but he had this other guy master it, and the guy's like, no, I don't really like it. I kind of like what this is doing here, because he got used to it, right? Mm-hmm. And then finally, he ended up hiring his, his regular mastering engineer, this guy down in LA, and blew it out of the water. And so he's like, but he's like, it's very risky, you know, like, cause you get used, you'll get used to seeing it through that lens. You yeah. Know? Yeah. I would say if people are going to do a shootout, you should, you should make a, uh, an effort to listen to both versions side by side, not one first. And then two weeks later, listen to the other. Yeah, like, exactly. Like, cause then you're going to get that demo-itis feeling that so many bands go through. Yeah, but you, you could be surprised, right? It could be doing a great job and you it might prefer be, yeah. it for whatever reason. Cause you know, it's, it's a roll of the dice, you know? Of course. Do you ever think, do you think that, um, AI will get to that point where it, it will replace humans? Uh, as an, object- as an audio production tool? <laughs> yeah, I guess, uh, objectively speaking, not, not from having experience, uh, just from being a civilian and not having experience working for the tech company. I would say that uh, I would highly doubt it. Um, doesn't mean that it can't serve a purpose, right? Mm-hmm. Like McDonald's is good for you, you know, like is, is good for a cheap meal, but it's not necessarily good for you. You could eat somewhere else, but sometimes it's convenient. It's fast. You know, you don't have time to sit down. You're on the 401, uh, <laughs> you know, that, that kind of thing. You just want instant gratification yep. and, uh, and it might make you feel sick to your stomach afterwards but you know like maybe if you eaten the taking the healthier choice or the more expensive choice where you had to sit down and wait for a reservation and you know and and mm-hmm. work with a pro with a the top chef you know like you might get a different experience but it's not always what it calls for yeah and and do you ever think that we will see it sounded like maybe this is what lander started off as but like do you do you think we'll see a mixing version of it maybe not by lander but like just will AI get to that point where it could auto mix a song? Yeah. Well, this is another one of these like insider secret things that I have to, I'll give you a story. I'll jump back to when I got the call to go for interviews at mm-hmm. the company. So I'll give you that perception of it where when they first called me and, and were telling me about the, the job and what it would entail and the technology, which is an automated mixing platform, it was a little crazy, you know, and I was listening and, and I, I guess, I guess he, the guy I was talking to, he jumped in before I'd sort of had any objections. He's like, I know it sounds crazy. It sounds like, but we're, but what we're doing first is we're developing a mastering platform. So, so then he started to tell me about that. He's kind of like, before you hang up the phone, we're also doing this now. So that I could get my head around. I said, okay, it's a stereo track mastering. Yeah, I think we can, we can do something there. So for the mixing technology, I don't know. I think there's just way too many variables. And I've seen other companies' technology, um, you know, independent of Lander that have worked on this stuff. And uh, it's just, it didn't, did not do a good job. And yeah, there's just way too many variables. I mean, it'd be, it'd be cool to develop something like for um, automated sound checks 
and things like that, you know, for different venues. And there's definitely a lot of things there, like instrument recognition, people are working on that technology. Um, so I think there's like, there's the ability for DAWs to become more intelligent in terms of like setting up your session. I think it would be cool. It's like, you just dump all your tracks, take a folder, dump all your tracks. Oh, this is probably a bass track. Then I'm going to put this stack on it because Mike loves this on bass. And these are probably guitars and these are probably vocal harmonies. And it populates your DAW for you and, and sets it up like that. And I think something like that could probably be developed, but something to actually deal with the intricacies and you yourself uh, more than the next uh, person would know how, you know, how complicated it is to actually mix something properly. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I find tech so interesting, right? It's always growing and people are just always expanding on what I think is possible. And uh, so it's cool to hear from somebody who's seen kind of the back end of one of these companies that if you told someone 20 years ago, there's going to be this online thing that can master songs, people would be like, bullshit, not yeah. happening. Even, right? <laughs> even five years ago when I started there in 2014, so a little over five years ago, I was there for four years and which felt like eight or maybe 12. Yeah. <laughs> it was just crazy, crazy work schedule, crazy stress, crazy pressure. And, but it was, it was a lot of fun too. And met a lot of great people and, uh, you know, learn a ton just creating this new technology. Um, but yeah, even five years ago when we first came out, people were, and there was other people in, in the space, like Maximal Sound and a bunch of other companies. And there's, there's dozens now probably, but maybe five that are really doing anything like um, E-Mastered and Cloud Bounce and um, Area. You know, I think those are probably some, probably the top three that you see the most. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, Area is cool. I like that because it's got the analog component to it where it's basically a robotic arm controlling all the analog. But, um, you know, the guy who started that also does you know, quote unquote, proper mastering at his professional facility uh, for people that don't want to use the machine. So, but I'm sure, you know, I haven't had a chance to uh, to test that stuff out as a civilian, not to say that I've ever tested anything and everything out in, uh, in the past, but yeah, it's, it's one, been a while. One thing that I think people still struggle with sometimes is this idea that you can fool yourself easily if a master or a mix is louder than another and your ears will always gravitate to that louder one so when it comes to like the loudness wars what's your take on it is that something that still exists oh yeah it definitely <laughs> it's it definitely still exists um it's definitely i would say it's definitely still a problem um just in just because i still get asked to make really loud mixes uh and really loud masters rather um and whether it's a problem or not I think we're going to start feeling a backlash. I'm happy to make a, a loud master. I used to be uh, a bit more of a purist, but being exposed to tons of different genres over the years and working on the research and technology, and some people are just looking for different things. Like I've worked from, you know, genres from EDM to hip hop to rock to folk to country, uh, classical music, tons of different stuff. Uh, and, and pop stuff, like people still send me the pop stuff that they want. They want it real loud. And, you know, I try not to go above that negative seven, negative eight territory in general, mm -hmm. but that's what the client wants. That's what the producer wants. They're going in it knowing full, full well the loudness wars and everything that comes with that. 
but they still want those loud masters. Uh, what I tend to do with new clients is maybe educate them a bit on the advantages of having a more dynamic mix. And what I also like to do is put it so I, I can give my spiel and talk to them on the phone or send them an email with some information. Um, but I can also give them an option. So say if we're doing a single together or if we're, I'm doing the first song for an album that's coming on, they can make the decision. I can give them two masters and here's one that's more dynamic and here's one is like where I'm comfortable. This is as loud as I would comfortably like to get. And in some cases, I could still say, here are the two masters. If you really want me to make that loud one louder, I can still do it. But this is where I feel is the, a good balance. Yeah. You're, yeah, your experience is, is dictating kind of what the end result should be. Yeah, but I'm also, and I'm, I'm going to be trying to push this a, lo a lot more in just terms of delivering uh, two masters to my clients. This is for your CD master. You know, basically, I'm going to try to do this more, like I still do it now, but not in all cases. Um, I'm going to say, put this on the streaming sites. This is the more dynamic one, because that's where it's really going to hurt you, right? When it gets on, the, with all the loudness normalization stuff, that Spotify and YouTube and, and, and everybody else has an Apple Music. So put it, put, upload this one and use this one for your CD, or even use this one for your Bandcamp if you want, and use this you know, well, I'm going to send them two masters. I think I'm going to be doing more and more of that. And one of the things I've also been doing lately is uh, uh, Instagram. Interesting. Yeah, because I've noticed that the the promos, a lot of the promos that have been going up on Instagram, whatever their algorithms are, whatever, however they're converting your your music, if it's too loud, it ends up getting clipped. And it's not like I put on fairly dynamic uh, acoustic singer songwriter stuff on that. And then I, I hear it back in an Instagram story or whatever. And this isn't like a reshared Instagram story because that just, there's like transcoding yeah, going layers on. Layers on layers. Yeah, it just gets worse and worse as we go along. But even stuff that I've just uploaded, I started to notice over the last couple of years that, uh, yeah, it'll, things will clip. We're like, oh, that whole line of that vocal, that word and that word, they're just all clipping. And then so someone's going to see it's more. It's for the client, but it's also for myself because someone's like, oh, who mastered that? Or if even if you're putting your name on mastered at Paul Edwards 514, you know, like, well, that's clipping. Sounds like shit. You know, like, so it reflects my work as well. So I tend to say, hey, if you got the single, I'll give you an Instagram version as well. Well, it seems like there's just so many, like, one of the things that I really admire about a good mastering engineer is that they know how to make mixes that can translate or masters that translate from system to system and also from uh, service to service, whether that's the Instagram or Facebook or uh, Spotify, all that kind of stuff. Um, how do you ensure that your masters will translate across other sets of speakers and all these other platforms? Like what kind of things are you doing to, to help you in those cases? Uh, I was going to go for a joke there, but if I, <laughs> like, go I for just, it. Go I for just, it. I got an account online with yep. uh, with area and I just run them <laughs> through there. Let's get let's get everyone a plug. I got a cloud uh, an account with cloud bounce and I just pump them through there. Uh, I'm sure there's people doing that too. Oh yeah, I'm convinced of it. I'm convinced there's some people that they won't. He's these he's some of the popular ma uh, mastering engineers out there too. That's like they won't show you a picture of their studio, and they pump out work and they say they talk and they have workflows and different things that they can do. And uh, yeah, I don't know. 
That seems like a... How could, how could you be doing all this quality work? You know, they're probably just, they got an account with Lander or whoever, and they're just pumping stuff through there. And if someone calls them on it, they say, okay, well, I'll, I'll rework it. And then maybe they'll master it then. But I don't know. So that, that's my joke. But, it's a uh, brilliant idea, though. I love that idea of uh, bounce to social media within within your DAW. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But <laughs> but I've uh, yeah, I, I can honestly say that jokes aside, I have honestly say I've not used any online technology. Uh, yeah, since I left Lander. Um, but yeah, so uh, I, I I did it. I screwed myself over. I, I, I screwed up the question. So what's what is your question again? <laughs> um, what do you do to ensure that your masters will translate right. across various speaker sets and services? Yeah, I think in the earlier days, I would do a lot of like car references and testing it on multiple speakers and, you know, things like that. Trying it in earbuds, having multiple speakers set up. But I think over the years, um, what, I, what I've done and, you know, you, like we spoke about before, using analyzers, doing best practices kind of stuff, you know, that doesn't sound very sexy, but, you know, you're, 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 you're doing the proper, more of scientific steps, the more clinical steps to make sure that, um, everything looks right on paper, you know, uh, but just getting to know your room, getting to know your speakers, getting to know your headphones, like, uh, that's, that's been one of the more key things. So just listen, don't make your studio just where you go to work like pop on listen to music you know like and listen to like if you can wherever possible listen to flack versions of your cds or high quality downloads or you know try out title that has the hi-fi and the master quality for things so you know because listening spotify seems to be a little bit better these days but some of the stuff that I used to listen on Spotify, I thought my barefoots were, they, they were broken. Like one day when I turned it, because some guitar or some instrument in an old mix that I know, like the back of my hand was distorting. So I'm like, it can't be the song because I've never heard that in the song before. And I, I thought my barefoots needed to go to get serviced. And then I started to discover and find out about Spotify and you know how they process your music and how, how crappy it can sound. Yeah. Um, not to, not to crap on online streaming services. Cause I still use those guys, um, a number of them throughout the day to listen to music, but more bookshelf speakers walking around the house in the car, just like enjoying music and not being a professional. So, but yeah, so having said that, is it learn, listen to as much commercial music and music that you're familiar with, um, on your headphones, your working headphones and your working speakers in that environment and just get to know them. Um, and you know, it probably wouldn't hurt to shoot out your room. So get a hand on a measurement microphone or even a small diaphragm condenser or whatever you have access to and download room EQ wizard and follow the steps. There's tutorials online. It's free and see what's happening in your room. Yeah. I think that's great advice for anyone, whether it's mixing or mastering, like it's super important to learn all of those things you just talked about. What, what other advice would you have for someone who's just getting started and, and wants to get into mastering as a career? Where should they start there? Uh, I'd say, firstly, is like listen to a ton of music and be open to multiple genres of music. Um, if not all, you know, all of them. <laughs> Expose yourself, you know, get out of your comfort zone and don't cut yourself off from the potential of like discovering some new music because you think a certain genre isn't cool or you're worried about what other people might think if you're listening to XYZ. Um, but yeah, just 
I mean, if you just want to record rock or mix rock or mix hip hop, um, you know, immerse yourself in that, but be open to different genres of music, especially as a mastering engineer, because you're likely to get um, solicited by tons of different bands, you know? And mas mastering engineers typically uh, don't don't specialize in any one particular genre. I think that that stuff just sort of comes from maybe the your circle, right? So if you were in a rock band, you tend to know a lot of people in rock bands, and they come to you. But I, you know, I do hip hop to uh, hip hop to rock to country to folk to classical. I did a bunch of instrumental stuff last month, and uh, you know, sound design stuff. So. Um, I know I, I kind of feel sad for people that are like that really uh, shit on certain types of music, and uh, you know the fact that I don't like all types of music, you know, but I can appreciate all types of music. There's some stuff that I don't want to listen to all the time, um, like noise stuff or Norwegian black metal or stuff like that. Like it just, you know, I can I've worked with metal bands and I've done a lot of stuff like that, and I enjoy going to concerts, but it's probably not what I'm going to put on you know, when I want to chill at home. Um, yeah. but I'm not, I can find the value and appreciate that type of music. I really feel like legitimately sorry for people that are just like, I never listen to whatever pop or I never listen to hip hop or whatever. I'm like, you're just closing yourself up from the opportunity of enjoying all music. Yeah. You can <laughs> you learn know? so much from listening to other genres. Yeah, exactly. And especially like as a songwriter or something, you can get different ideas for things, right? Cause you're like, I never thought of that. Like when I started to, I was just uh, a guy who was in bands for, you know, five years or more when I got into electroacoustics, and and I just saw everything as a song and an A B C A B whatever you know kind of song structure stuff, and when I did elect the year of electroacoustics, what it taught me was to think outside of that box of like typical arrangements for a rock song. And like creating these pieces and not to mention manipulating sounds and using crazy effects and filters and uh, playing with synths and tape loops and stuff. So I can bring that. That's another, if I would have just said that's crazy, like that's weird music, I would have never been able to transfer some of that stuff that I liked into certain projects that I work on. So it just yeah. gives you like, gives you another um, weapon in your, in your in your tool, in your weapon, sure. in your weapon holster, in your, in your toolbox. <laughs> your, your, your gun holster. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that, that'd <laughs> be one, one advice. Just listen to, to ton of music. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, no, I, I think that's awesome. I, I, and I think that that's so important. Like you look at a band, like, um, look at a band like Muse, for example, it's like, if I think it's Chris Lord Algy, who, who Chris Lord Algy, who, uh, mixed all their stuff. And it's like, He's worked on so much stuff in different genres, and I think that that's why he's a perfect fit for a band like them. Like he he can listen to the dubstep stuff and know how to mix it and make it sound amazing, and then he can apply that same sort of principle to a band like Muse, who's fusing all these genres and and make it sound amazing. Exactly. Like the the more experience you have, just in general, like in life, will just it, it increases your your education and your life experience, and it can't not help you with your you know your next issue that you you know your next struggle that you have to tackle you yeah. know it, ju it just makes sense but the other, sure. the other thing would be the advice to just like work with a lot of other people you know like go mentor with somebody go sit in on a session if you can um collaborate you know it's mastering engineers a little harder to collaborate with so maybe try to find someone you can mentor or shadow or ask questions to 
but join an online community, that sort of thing. Go work. If you want to be a mastering engineer, you know, find, find, if you have 10, you know, 10 mixing projects, producing projects that you have in a year, you know, maybe do some of them on your own and get paid for them, but convince whatever band you're working with to go work with another mastering engineer. So you can be in on those sessions and maybe see how he does it and ask a few questions here and there without disturbing the session or write the questions down and ask them to him later or something like that. But yeah, I just, love that. just collaborate as much as possible because um, mastering engineer, it's, it's harder to collaborate, but yeah, I guess you just have to go work with one. But uh, if I'm sure there's all, also mixing engineers and uh, recording engineers that listen uh, to your podcast. So it would just be like collaborate as much as possible like one of the things that I found, like it's very common for film students to collaborate, you know, at, at school, like back mm -hmm. when I was in university, because they have to in most cases, right? There had to be a guy doing sound and there had to be someone working, uh, you know, holding, you know, holding, working the lights and another one person directing and another one person maybe writing the script. And then there's it's a real team effort. Yeah, there's actors involved, you know, like it has to be it just out of necessity most of the time. Um, you have to, but when you're recording, it's usually you need two guys on a session or one guy on a session. So there's not that much interaction. And especially now where people have laptops and crack software and whatever, and they can just do everything in their base in their basement or their bedroom or their apartment. Um, you know, there's less interaction. So just try to collaborate and don't try to get every credit for yourself because you, you think that's cool. Like sometimes just you can be the engineer and let someone else mix it. They can have that credit, yeah. just let it go and you might learn something. I think that's so awesome what you just said, man. Like it's it's something that even even experienced engineers fall into this trap where they want to still be the ones getting credit for everything and their learning stops at a certain point because they've just decided, okay, that's it. From now on, I'm doing all these projects myself. And I can even think back to like my own experiences with my band. Like I I was in a band for years where every member of the band worked in a studio. And we were all recording engineers and we we could all produce and we can like I one of my guys worked at a major mastering studio as well. And like so we had all these like production style brains in our band and we would record ourselves, but then and like do our demos and stuff like that. But then we would often hire someone else to record us and produce our records because or, or to master it. We just like partially because then it just like relieved us of the work, but but like those experiences, like I still learned so much from working with other people and I now take those things that I learned in those sessions and apply them to my own mixes. So there's, you, you got to constantly be learning and be willing to collaborate, like you said, and, and, and learn from other people. Yeah. That's so smart too, that, that you guys decided to take it elsewhere, even though you all could do the skill. Cause yeah, when you're in that headspace of just being, it's so freeing and I've done it so rarely cause I've always recorded a lot of my own stuff. And, but the times where I've gone and there's been another engineer in charge and I just get to be the singer guitar player, like, man, like it's nothing so freeing and you really shouldn't be, sometimes it's inevitable and sometimes it works, but if you treat yourself to, to working with somebody else and you'll definitely learn a lot. Plus you, you just get to, you know, focus on your music, like you said. So that's pretty, that's really smart. I'm surprised you guys did that five guys in the band and you still got somebody else. We still did it. That's that's impressive. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's it's definitely a challenge, right? Because when you when you know how to do certain things or you, you know how to get the sound you hear, there's times when you want to step in. But there's also, we found too that like, we wanted someone who would tell us and call us out on that and be like, okay, I know you guys normally like to do it this way. 
let me try my way and be like, okay, cool. Let's try it out. It's something experimental. And then it'd be like, sometimes we'd just be blown away by how well it worked. Nice. And then sometimes we didn't like it, but then we, we could have that open conversation about like, okay, well, we liked, we like this sound or whatever. We're like, let's try this. And ultimately at the end of the day, you're, you're just always trying to produce something that serves the song and gives you the best results. And you have to have an open mind no matter what you're doing. Yeah. Put your, put your egos aside. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, man, you shared so much awesome stuff here today. Like, thanks so much for, for getting on here and chatting with me. Um, how can people learn more about you and follow you online? Uh, I guess pauledwards.ca, um, the Canadian content there. So pauledwards.ca <laughs> and Twitter, which I don't really, uh, do Twitter is pauledwards514. Also, uh, my Instagram, which I'm fairly active on there. That's probably a good way to hit me up. pauledwards514. And those are the numbers, 514. And uh, the other thing is uh, unfamouspodcast.com. So, awesome, man. And it's funny that you said the about the sharing credits and stuff. On the second episode of my podcast, this is young producer, songwriter guy called Connor Seidel. And about the middle of that, I'll send you, I'll send you a link. He talks basically about that, about letting go and like stop, stop trying to do everything and about hiring another mixing engineer and another mastering engineer and basically trying to make yourself like the least knowledgeable guy in the room. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so yeah, I think you'll get a lot out of that. Awesome. Yeah. I'd love to hear that. Any, uh, last question, any, any cool projects that you're working on now that you're excited to talk about? Uh, yeah, I just did an album with the school, like hip hop band from Montreal called the lions, L Y O N Z. Uh, and we're going to be doing some more stuff together soon, but you should check out their stuff. Uh, I'm going to be producing some more stuff with a band called sweet Roger. Um, we're in the middle of pre-prod right now. It's kind of like rock folk, rock folk Americana. And uh, there was another kind of like rock hip hop hybrid album that just came out called Habits, H A V I I T Z. That's um, probably cool to check out. But if you go on pauledwards.ca, um, there's a length of uh, all the live and all the studio stuff that I've done. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much again. And uh, I can't wait for, for people to hear this because I think you shared a ton of really good stuff. Awesome, Mike. Thanks, it's, man. it's been a total pleasure. Awesome. So there you have it, guys. That was my interview with Paul Edwards. And I thought that was a really fun chat. It was great to get a different perspective on Lander and learn a little bit more about what went into it and kind of get his take on its usefulness and when you can use it in modern applications and when it's good to go with something like Lander versus going with a real mastering engineer. Now, considering I do a lot of mastering work myself, I always believe that there is something to be said for hiring a mastering engineer. And from my own experience doing some shootouts against Lander, there are definitely some things that Lander can't handle uh, that a real mastering engineer can uh, in terms of sequencing your, your tracks, making them all or making them all consistent with each other, dealing with little things like clicks and pops. Those are things that these automated programs, they might be getting better with them. I haven't used them in a little while, but definitely a mastering engineer will give you that extra attention to detail. So something to consider if you are debating going with Lander or not. But yeah, I had a great conversation with Paul and Paul, if you're listening, thanks so much for being on. And guys, if this is your first time tuning into the Master Mix podcast, welcome and thank you so much. And I hope you really enjoyed it. 
But also make sure to check out MasterYourMix.com. On that website, I have a whole bunch of mixing lessons and tutorials and videos and all sorts of great tips and tricks to help you with making better mixes from your home studio. And one of the free downloads that I've got right now is something I call the Ultimate Mixing Blueprint. It's a guide to using EQ and compression across a variety of instruments in your mixes. And it gets you up and running really quickly. It lets you know what to boost, what to cut, and what to listen out for because Let's face it, when you're, especially when you're getting started, it can be hard to figure out what to be listening for in your instruments. And, you know, you might be tempted to use presets, but presets don't get you the results that your songs need. And you need to know how to manipulate the sound to get the best results for your particular tracks. So make sure to check that out. Once again, it's called the Ultimate Mixing Blueprint, and it's available at MasterYourMix.com. So that's it for this episode, guys. I hope you really enjoyed it, and I'll talk to you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit masteryourmix.com.